to episode four of the complete Satoshi Kon. This is Paranoia Agent, uh, and we should uh, run through this pretty quickly. It's only about a uh, six-hour, thirteen-episode, uh, <laughs> completely insane, uh, far-reaching uh, masterclass with about oh, I don't know, a hundred characters in it. So this should be pretty easy. I'm Matt Gastire, and uh, I am here with my partner in this uh, impossible endeavor, Travis Trudell. How are you, Travis? I am fantastic, though I will say, prepping for this episode, I felt like the opening intro to this TV show, just me screaming and laughing and not knowing what to do, and... uh... (laughs) And things get <laughs> progressively more uh, more ins- more uh, difficult for me to understand. But uh, it was yeah. Good. I, I, I expect uh, Shonen Bat to show up at any point during this episode <laughs> to put us out of our misery. <laughs> well, you know what my grandmother always says, Matt. You know how you eat an elephant, one piece at a time. So that's how we'll do it. We'll just go episode by episode. It'll be great. Your grandma made up that that saying? Oh yeah, my grandmother is uh, full of wisdoms. (laughs) (laughs) Especially while eating elephants, I guess. Definitely about eating elephants. Yeah. Um, Yeah, okay. Well, so this is is an unusual one for us. We have done one miniseries previously, uh, which was uh, the Decalogue. Um, But we uh, did the smart thing that time and broke it up into more manageable uh, elephant feet-sized pieces. Um, <laughs> here, uh, not so much. We're going to, uh, because this is a mini-season, we, we don't want to, uh, w- I mean, we could talk for two hours about each one of these episodes. So f- instead of doing that, we're going to kind of just touch on the, the major points of Paranoia Agent and um, go through each episode and kind of talk about how it ties into Cone's work as a whole, because um, I think there's obviously very clear connections there and uh both to his um anime but also to his manga um work as well um and uh i i'm relying a lot on you here travis because uh this is one of those this is one of those works that you kind of just want to sit with and uh ponder uh and just sort of feel your way through you know what i mean feel the bit you gotta feel the bit oh Um, yeah it's a little hard to pick apart i think I don't think it's, it collapses when you pick pick it apart, but I think it kind of loses a little bit of its magic. Well, it's like one of those, uh, you know, you pull one little thing and then it springs and opens up more, and you're just like, ah, I, it's like it's like when uh, when surgeons are operating on someone's uh, uh, <laughs> spine and they hit that little sack and then all these little nerve endings <laughs> pop open, and you're like, oh my god, there's too much more now. <laughs> I need to push it back, push it back. Uh, no, I agree. There's a there is a lot to talk about in this episode. There's a lot of things to cover, but I think if yeah, I think like we said, if we focus on the each episode at a time and kind of pick apart the things and then go over the general themes and arcs, I think uh, I think we'll be good because there's a lot of stuff in here. As Con has uh, said in the past. Uh, this TV show is uh, is a lot of things that went into his writing drawer, um, ideas and thoughts and scenarios that couldn't really make it into other of his movies um, or into you know manga that he had planned. Uh, just these different 
things, and you can see that throughout the show. Uh, we get to some episodes where uh, they're a little more piecemeal and a little less away from the the narrative. Um, and also, he makes a point of pointing out that he recycled a lot for this series. Um, a proud thing he pointed out, uh, making sure we understood that uh, it's okay to do that. You know, reusing some of Tokyo Godfather's animation in this series. Uh, reusing clouds or smoke that they've made in the past and kind of layering them or changing sizes. Um, he was not happy with the pressure of television schedule. And so by... Really re- interesting. I know, right? It's almost <laughs> like you don't have... You would never get that from the, from the series. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so he did a lot of recycling. He did a lot of reusing... Um, the biggest amount of money he spent was making sure that he got uh, uh, Hirasawa to do the sa- to, to compose original music yeah. for the whole thing, and uh, he was just you know he's a fanboy of that uh, of that perform performer a musician and uh, composer, and so he was so excited to get all this music, including the uh, the opening title track from Dream Island Obsessional Park. I don't think uh, he he wrote a lot of this based on a lot of the intro based on that song and a lot of the pieces of the series based on that song so um it plays predominantly throughout the series and uh i guess our first thing we need to come to terms with matt is do we want to refer to him as little slugger or shonen bat here's where we here's where we divide our audience of anime (laughs) fans who are then gonna say well screw you guys it's gotta go shonen bat (laughs) i mean for me this series is so um, dense, and the animation is. Even though I think there there are moments where I mean it's, it's certainly not as um, detailed and sophisticated as Tokyo Godfathers, but I think the concepts in the animation are so interesting um, that I prefer watching the dub uh, to mm-hmm. the original uh, Japanese version. However, Shonen Bat way way better name than little slugger yeah i wish they had just kept shonen bat because it's way better it's way better like it's objectively cooler yeah it is way cooler uh enter little slugger doesn't sound very threatening or uh devious which i guess is also if we really want to go deep it's uh part of the theme of it anyway that uh right <laughs> cutesy it's got to be also a little bit cutesy to uh, tie into its uh, its finale. So yeah, well, I think like the uh, like you were saying um, about uh, his recycling, that sort of ties into the theme of the show as well, um, and the sort of main uh, narrative thread um, of this uh, you know animator who reuses material um, from her past in sort of. Um, surreptitious ways uh, so it, he it, he's one of those um, filmmakers that uh, this sort of thing where you're just kind of tying together all of these loose threads from uh, you know previous work that you've done that you couldn't really plug in anywhere um, really works not even just like in terms of how it all comes together but just thematically that's it's the kind of thing that you would find completely appropriate from him um you know similar to uh david lynch who uh the his twin peak series is frequently compared to uh this series um 
it's just one of those things where it's like, oh, yeah, a stream of consciousness movie like Inland Empire, of course, that works completely well with the things that David Lynch uh, has been concerned with throughout his career. Um, you know, Twin Peaks, The Return. Yeah, like all of these weird things got swirling around this um, very specific um, murder case. Um, yeah, totally ties into everything else that he wants to talk about. So um yeah i mean he got he got away with something a little bit here but also at the same time like it's just it fits so nicely into even the parts that don't fit into um the other films that he's done fit in because of the the kind of uh thematic uh underpinnings of all of his work you know the 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 way that um he's got meta commentary and the way that he incorporates dream imagery and uh, subjective perspective um, and tying um, sort of internal battles to larger external uh, conflicts. Um, all of these things were very uh, natural fits for all of these ideas, but also to, for, for Cohn's career. Yeah, no, for sure. I, uh, you know the idea that he he continues his uh conversation about obsessions um about uh our role in how we have become slaves to technology and about how we continue to use fantasy to escape our realities um these are all things that we've touched upon in the previous episodes and we'll touch upon one more time when we move to his next film and he gets to mine these more uh specifically in this show because we uh each episode is kind of centered around uh uh, one character um as opposed to kind of like it being an ensemble where we we meet everyone uh and we kind of rotate around them he he has a format in the show where we're kind of with a central character mainly in each show um, but we do have through lines uh, we do see the interconnectedness of it all uh, kind of like Tokyo Godfathers in which we start to realize that you know this person is connected to this person is the daughter of this person uh, this show has that same uh, that same thread running through but uh the focus of each personal obsession or each personal uh, moment of escapism is uh, is the focus uh, per episode. Um, so I guess our best place to start is with that first episode, Enter Little Slugger, or Enter Shonen Bat, if you want to be cooler. Um, and uh, it's where we get to meet our main character, uh, Sukiko. Um, she is a not an animator but she's a designer yeah she does she has she is uh, famous for designing Maromi, this cute dog uh kind of a stand-in for like the uh hello kitty type craze of uh, uh of that time or a little earlier more like the 80s but uh uh just of that cultural uh cutesy animal thing that uh everyone starts to wear and throughout the Throughout the show, we see that character grow in popularity, and with it comes uh, attention to Sukiko, who is a uh, very who is portrayed as very sensitive, very almost 
frail to a point where she uh, um, her information overload and the pressure of having to create something just as good as Maromi and just her kind of disposition seems to be one of uh, of sensitivity and fragility and uh, it it can it plays into what her character arc ends up going through and what kind of things she needs to face to kind of uh, complete her story. Um, <clears throat> we also get to... We also have a... This episode is huge and foreshadowing. If you've watched this show before, you definitely want to go back and rewatch episode one after watching the final episode because you can see just so many pieces, so many uh, imagery, so much stuff that kind of completely... Uh, doubles um at the end and all kinds of uh things that were foreshadowed before yeah similar to uh what i just mentioned twin peaks the return there's a uh cyclical nature to this series that um you you do not catch the first time around um and i, I think you know the other thing i want to say uh based on your your summary there is that you know the it really establishes the idea that she created this character as a release for this, uh, you know, kind of fragility and stress in the modern world. And that ties into kind of why the character is so popular, but also sets up the uh, kind of core conflict of the series that people are kind of just stressed out in modern life essentially oh yeah yeah um, this was this was uh let's see i've we ended i don't know how many times you watch this series but i watched it three times which is a lot of time um because there is the first time i was kind of stuck on the whole mystery of it um which kind of once you get to certain episodes you kind of start realizing that i was foolish to just yeah focus on that so then you need to watch it again for kind of uh, thematic content and then you can watch it again for uh, depth and it wasn't until the third viewing that I got to a point where I saw a poster in the background where uh, Maromi is called the healing dog um, which was uh, which was something I didn't catch until that third viewing and uh, yeah. it ties into that idea of what, what he's created for what his purpose is um, is to bring comfort to people um, right, and we see we see a bit of the uh, pilot later on in the series, um, the the cartoon within the cartoon of this dog, and it's essentially like a cute, adorable version of Shonen Bat. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's this character that comes to people in this great time of stress or where they have a serious problem in their life, but rather than uh, you know uh, assault them with a with a bat. He, uh, Maromi is kind of bringing love and joy um, yeah. and, and peace to them. Um, so, I mean, the, it's, it's that, that link is made pretty early on. Um, and, and all of this kind of societal stress is established immediately. I mean, before we meet uh, the designer, we uh, see people just going about their kind of daily modern lives um, providing excuses to people, uh, you know, as they, uh, commute and, um, are stressed out about their situation and they are texting with people and talking on the phone with people and basically, um, trying to 
kind of remove themselves from these obligations, societal obligations that they have. So um, immediately we get this, uh, not only just like the universality of the kind of societal stress, but it becomes this real collective psychosis, uh, even before we meet any characters, the, this idea that sort of everybody is linked in to uh, through technology in particular to this um, sense that we're all kind of going insane. <laughs> and that's, uh, you know, and this this series came out the same year as Facebook came out. Uh, so <laughs> this was before before Twitter, before all the societal stresses that we, you know, people are struggling with today with our addiction to social media and the interconnectedness and societal stress that plays into that. And it's, it's fantastic, uh, very prescient and very uh, thoughtful. I'm sure in Japan where uh, they embrace a lot of technologies, maybe that's kind of stuff uh, cropped up earlier. Uh, than here in the United States, but I mean, we could easily uh, take that obsession with Facebook and social media to many other uh, many other types of uh, societal uh, group think that has uh, plagued us before our social media times. But yeah, it's uh, uh, they set it up right off the bat, and uh, we we follow those people, and we also get to meet uh, three of our other characters that kind of we. We follow through the series. We get to meet our uh, our anchors, our uh, main points. We get to meet Akari, who's a, an old uh, senior detective at, in the police force, and his partner Manoa, who is more of a uh, a new school detective, a little younger, um, a little more plugged into the modern world. And uh, as they go about investigating uh, this brutal attack, our uh, our our protagonist uh, Sukiko is walking home one night after the pressures of wanting to find a new uh, new mascot that they can new item to make a doll out of to start putting out there uh, she is uh, she falls in a parking lot uh, while trying to get home or get to her car that's uncertain and uh, she is uh, attacked by a unknown assailant and the police start to investigate and we are left with this mystery of who this person is, why why they're attacking her, um, and we get to meet uh, a investigative. Um, I wouldn't say he's a detective or a private investigator. He seems more like a tabloid journalist. Yeah, that's type what I guy. think. He, yeah, I think that's what he is. His name is uh, Kawazu, who uh, translate. It's an older translation of the word frog, and his. Uh, his uh, animation style definitely uh, matches that of a uh, amphibian. He's very, very gross and very, uh, you know, willing to do anything to kind of get his story, to get his money. Um, and uh, one of his main conflicts is that he had hit an old man with his car and... The old man is in the hospital, so he's being kind of pursued for that. Um, plus, on top of that, he's uh, he's trying to discover who this uh, mystery assailant is so he can get the scoop. He's, you know, bribing detectives left and right to get information. And he's on the trail of an old woman that was uh, the witness, uh, the only witness for that night, the only person who kind of saw something. And 
his story ends pretty abruptly as he's attacked as well at the end of the episode. Um, the, this episode, I think, uh, it's fair to say, has a lot of perfect blue in it. You know, yes. Um, I mean, I, not just the kind of uh, sort of uh, fragile female protagonist uh, dealing with success. Um, the final chase sequence, uh, or the the chase sequence with her um, being attacked, is very reminiscent of the final sequence in Perfect Blue. Um, even the music uh, recalls the the music in Perfect Blue. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and of course the, the establishment of this, uh, relationship, fraught relationship with technology is, uh, you know, again, a recurrent theme in Cohn's work and, and shows up in particular in, in Perfect Blue. And I think just like Perfect Blue also, this episode establishes a, uh, a means to grab an audience like his uh like what he intended for perfect blue to do is to make people kind of to sit up and take notice and take notice of him and kind of pull his movie off the shelf opposed to all the other uh video on demand type titles um this episode kind of does set you up it is very twin peaksian and it's uh, very much plastic bag uh, wrapped woman and uh what what the mystery is and it's through this right. mystery that we kind of get to know all these personalities that are it's a it's an extremely conventional kind of setup for a tv show similar to twin peaks where there's an expectation of a certain kind of show uh being established um that is immediately subverted by the second episode in certain regards um because you're no longer kind of focused on this main character you're focused on a completely new character and even though you know immediately uh in the second episode there's uh references to what happened in the first episode it's still uh kind of sets you up to say okay well where how are these going to become connected where are we going with these different stories and um you know why why aren't we trying to figure out who attacked this lady (laughs) yeah exactly well it's kind of like one of those things where uh, it feels like you're putting together a puzzle then you get to a certain point and uh you realize that nope this isn't a puzzle this is something completely different and you got to take all those pieces away because it's not going to fit together it's not going to paint the picture that you're expecting it to and uh yeah i think also it's it's it really makes you think about okay well why did i care about that in the first place you know what why was i paying attention to that when i could have been paying attention to all these other things that were baked right into uh you know the pilot of both of these shows um but that uh, there's a so there is a sense I think through this uh, series that you start to realize that maybe both in narrative filmmaking and in your life you are looking for the wrong thing you know you're you're focused on something that is maybe not the more important thing um, and the even the more dangerous thing you know there's this uh, guy out there that's going to attack people uh, in their moment, in deepest moment of weakness. Uh, we got to find him. We got to bring him to justice. I mean, it's just like the local news. Like, 
the local news is going to cover uh, the mass shootings, but they're not going to cover the, um, you know, uh, tens of thousands of people who die every year from living in poverty, because that's a problem that is uh, significantly more difficult to solve, or at least, you know, mass shootings should be easy to solve, but we just refuse to solve them. But at least, you know, there's, there's a straightforward answer to the reason why that uh, happens. Whereas in terms of the larger societal issues and um, the things that kind of we struggle with every day on an emotional level, it's a, it's a lot more difficult to figure out kind of how to get yourself out of that cycle. Yeah, it's that it's that old concept of uh, you know one starving child is easier for people to wrap their minds right. around than a million starving children. So you know we focus on the one, which uh, really it's it's uh, never it's never the cure. We're, uh, we're, we're, you know, we're not treating the, uh, we're not treating the illness. We're just treating the symptom, which is, uh, or the reverse. We're not, you know, we're, we're looking at the wrong thing. So, uh, this, this show has, and, and tying back to Twin Peaks one more time, uh, you know, we have a scene where a character ties a, a a knot in a cherry stem, just like Sharon (laughs) Fenn does in the episode. And crazy enough, that show was super popular in Japan at that moment he was creating the show, mm. um, and it it was on the same network that he was uh, airing. Uh, wow Wow was a uh, was a television network in Japan, and uh, Twin Peaks was playing on that network. And Wow Wow is the network that uh, hosted Paranoia Agent, um, another Madhouse uh, production um, that he's worked with in the past, and. Uh, so yeah, so it is. It's it's a uh, it's intentional as as we've we, as we've discovered with uh, Satoshi Kon in the past. You know, sometimes uh, the things that we're pointing out as uh, that we kind of see connections to, he'll later be like, "Oh yeah, no, totally." Like I, I was totally into that show at that time. So I used a lot of I've recycled a lot of that information and uh, put it into the show. So and in that cherry um, stem scene, uh, there's another kind of connection to his previous work in um, the uh, the journalist uh, oh turns into different, completely different characters uh, as he's pretending to be her co-workers who are all um, kind of uh, jealous of her success and uh, dislike her. Um, he does impressions to the point where he actually transforms into the characters similar to what we saw um, in Tokyo Godfathers in the taxicab scene. Yeah, that's uh, that was and that and that's where you kind of start getting into uh, uh, the cone world of uh, of nothing is is what it seems, and we're gonna start blending more of this fantas- fantastical elements into the series. Um, you know, you kind of don't expect that to be the case. And then all of a sudden this happens and you're like, oh, that's right. Um, we can't take anything at face value and we have to understand that we're going to be watching something that uh, skirts the edges of fantasy and uh, dream logic. And um, that's the big scene that kind of really pushes that idea forward. I think that um, gets extended into episode two. You know, the, the subjective imagery becomes oh, yeah. more overt and more surreal in this episode this is about uh yuichi who is a uh sixth grade schoolboy and uh is extremely popular and knows it and uh is um you know uh, sort of in love with himself um but uh fits the description of shonen bat 
and so his classmates begin to uh, turn on him uh, believing that he is potentially this uh, assailant although you know again it's it's not necessarily clear uh, that the classmates are turning on him because it does it's so it's such a subjective episode that it becomes the situation where he's it seems like he's possibly doing this to himself like writing these notes to himself um oh yeah and paranoia paranoid yeah. narcissism uh, paranoid narcissism where he just right. like, he thinks he's the center of everything and when he starts to realize that maybe he isn't you know it just because he's challenged by another classmate named uh, uh uishi uh who is uh kind of like a a chubby schlubby kid from the country a country bumpkin type kid who's just moved into the city uh when he starts seeing that uh, other kids appreciate him and he's just as smart and but he's not this perfect uh you know perfect version which uh uh ichi uh believes himself to be uh it's almost like he's kind of self-sabotaging himself to some degree um because he starts to believe that no one likes him and he has those paranoid fantasies that uh, everyone's out to get him, which is uh, visually represented by this uh, warping and uh, stretching and uh, character devolvement uh, through his uh, subjective view of the world around him, which is a pretty cool uh, added uh, animation bonus to the episode. We also meet uh, another one of the victims that we're going to meet in the next episode, which is, uh, Harumi, um, mm -hmm. who is, uh, his personal tutor in the episode. We haven't really learned much more about her. We're going to learn a lot more about her in the third episode, but it's the first kind of indication that, uh, these characters are connected in some, uh, seemingly coincidental fashion that it's not just random people around the city that um are getting attacked by this character yeah we uh we're we don't really get to we don't visit sukiko at all in this episode we kind of stay at arm's length and uh this episode also introduces this idea of um how people talking about something can build up a uh a new narrative about something so uh, as you know as he believes that people think he's shown in bat and as the town starts to uh try to guess at the identity of this character as our detectives are still kind of investigating um the gossiping starts the rumor mill starts and people will start their conjecture at who this person is and i can't believe it's a middle schooler and uh you know can you believe that stuff and that starts to build this power and energy to kind of, uh, you know, mob mentality. Uh, the same kind of, it's now a replacement social social disease that uh, we're now connecting in a negative way to our neighbors as opposed to in a positive light. That mob mentality kind of thing starts to uh, foment in this episode of uh, people starting to uh, talk about uh, Little Slugger Shonen Bat in a... Uh, in a mythic sense uh and it just kind of it grows and grows as our show moves on but yeah uh he has a little crush on harumi you can tell he uh yeah 
you know, he calls her his peace, his tranquility, his place where he can go to kind of be himself, but he's never really actually acting himself because the moments where he acts himself are these really violent, vile uh, interactions he has with uh, with Ushi, um, uh, his, uh, his classmate that he's uh, running against for a student body president or something. Yeah, and the the kid is really only running just to like make friends. He doesn't actually expect to win or anything. Like his his yeah. advisor told him that it would be a, a good yeah, idea because he was bullied at his last yeah, school, so he yeah. moved, had to move to a new school because of bullying. And then this turns right around, and you know, and and there's moments where you know he thinks that Ushi's behind all of this. He's on the smear campaign yeah. against him. He's the one talking to all these kids and. You know, Uishi's the one who stands up for him, the one who sees him walking alone and will go run up and walk beside him because he he does see that Ichi is someone who needs a friend. Because really, uh, on the surface level, Ichi is by himself. He doesn't have any friends. He just believes that, you know, everyone loves him and everyone likes him, but there's no connections he's made. And so Uishi is, uh, as someone who has been bullied in the past, sees recognizes that and wants to reach out and uh, which only makes it worse of course exactly um the exactly. subjectives are the uh the kind of gossipy stuff you were talking about I, it's not in my notes but is this the episode that we kind of briefly see the gossipy women yes yeah we get to see the three uh the four ladies in the courtyard show the up apartment later complex. in a full episode yeah yeah um yeah um i mean i think that, you know the other thing about this episode is uh watching it for the first time you think okay well how long is this going to go on you know how how long is each episode going to be uh about a new victim basically before we kind of get on with the mystery of it all um it turns out to be four episodes but you don't know at this point um no. you know when kind of the uh the cycle is going to be broken of this um being you know every episode is a new victim yep it uh it has that kind of per, per, procedural format of news story of the week um, with our now our, our detectives being the only kind of through line um, as they as they're doing their investigation. And, yeah, you don't know uh, you're kind of you, you 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 get a sense now like, oh, OK, so maybe this is what this is about. We're going to kind of we're going to kind of be doing this each week. So once again, subverting your expectations, changing your opinion of what's going on. And things get more fantastical when Ichi, uh, Uishi, uh, is attacked by Shonen Bat. Uh, not Ichi, not not the golden boy, not the guy who's. But eventually he gets he gets attacked as well. Um, but we never see him get attacked by Little Slugger. We only see Uishi get attacked yeah. by Little Slugger, which leads us to wonder, kind of, well, we're. The kid who wasn't backed into a corner, the kid who wasn't having issues, the kid who wasn't, you know, is the one who got attacked this episode. So we're subverting our expectations where we don't have a connection to uh, Sukiko at this point. So we also have no idea. But throughout the episode still, you, you see little Moromi uh, keychains and stuff like that that kind of continue forward with, uh, you know, this character being the center of it all, which... We really never talked about, uh, you know, uh, I'll pause for a second here and go back. Uh, 
besides the opening credits being this amazing, uh, fantastical nightmare vision of things, um, every episode also has an end credit sequence, right? Uh, which until I until you get ten episodes in, you start to realize how much of that <laughs> that end credit sequence is also telling you information. Right. Um, we have a whole our whole cast of characters sleeping in a what looks like a question mark around um, a giant Maromi dog uh, in a field. Everyone's dreaming. Everyone is uh, asleep or dead. We don't know for sure. I, I The first time I saw it, I thought it was asleep. So then I started to think that maybe this show is about uh, the collective unconscious because, mm-hmm. you know, you have all these characters dreaming about this one dog, um, which until you get to the final episode, you really don't know how... Uh, how pertinent that information is uh followed by the old man who we met in the first episode we didn't talk about the old man either uh there's this old man doing uh math doing this giant equation in chalk on the ground um he's in this episode as well and you always see what his equation has something to do with uh another part of the episode so in the first one he does this math equation he gets to the final answer uh uh, he looks up and he sees uh, Sukiko in a train car uh, going by. And then later he writes the number uh, 501, which is the, or I think it's 502 maybe, or 501, 522, which is the room number Sukiko is in in the hospital. Um, this episode he writes the number one at the end. Uh, one is uh, 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 Yuichi's uh, nickname because his his nickname is Ichi number one uh the golden boy and so you start to also have this mystery of kind of like you know this old man is like the log lady of uh our twin peaks world he just shows up randomly and says and has this piece that you're kind of like oh what the what the hell's going on here what's the what's this guy's deal uh we discover that he's the old man that our, our our guy kawazu hit with his car so he's in the hospital um but you know he's kind of uh He's also our prophetic right. uh, prophesizer at, at the, the end, end of every of episode. Yeah, and it, I mean, do I think he's the first recurring character we see in both of these episodes, right? Because we do we yes. see him in the wheelchair immediately at the beginning of this episode, or well, maybe it's the gossiping women first. I think we see him. We we see, see we see him first so, uh, in the first episode. He is our first character yeah, we see. writing on the, because, on the ground. Yeah, it comes after the uh, the uh, montage uh, kind of setting up the city and the world. He's the first character. Which, and I'm, I'm totally jumping around here, but um, I mean, we see him and Maniwa at the same time at, during the series. So yes. they're ostensibly not the same person, but it does seem like Maniwa becomes him at the end of the series. Yeah, there's a passing off and of, begin, this, of and this basically role. is writing on the ground again. And the whole show starts over again. Yeah, it's like me. Uh, uh, it's like uh, Maniwa uh, hat is the one who has his consciousness expanded the most. Yeah. Uh, due to what he goes through, so he it's almost like the old man who, when struck by a car, also uh, comes close to death and has his consciousness uh, changed. And he's the one who's able to put together the whole picture. It's almost like that math equation is him. Uh, solving everything that's going on in the world at that moment and, uh, you know, coming up with the answers. Uh, but, of course, he has no clear means of communicating them because he is old and uh, his brain has been rattled. So 
he has, you know, he randomly puts out these words and these math equations. And then he prophesizes at the end of every episode, which at first you think it's kind of like this, uh, kind of like a novel uh, approach to kind of like on the next episode, uh, you know, of, of TV series of mm-hmm. the past. We used to have that kind of like on the next episode thing. And instead of a recap, we do on the next episode. And then you start to realize that he's teasing us with these uh these terms and these visuals and these uh, choice of words which uh all symbolize the things that are going to happen in the next episode and also where they fit into the larger scope of what this tv show is which is uh you know you start going back and watching those and uh it's super fun like it there's just so many creative levels to this series that uh he thought out and he's playing with because you know you start to realize he's playing with the tropes of the television series mm-hmm. as well as building this world as well as you know making these comments about society it's just like every other you know just like all of his other films like the layers are uh deep and long and he's commenting on more than just a couple things uh so yeah. So here so we go. We go episode go back three, to the, right? Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> well, uh, <laughs> we, we, we're gonna we be learned here, about we're Harumi. Be here all night. Um, I, you know, I think uh, if you thought Perfect Blue was in episode one, uh, here comes episode three, which is even more uh, Perfect Blue-like. Uh, we've got <clears throat> a woman who uh, is, uh, is she, she works at a university, and but she moonlights as a prostitute. Um, and it quickly becomes clear that it's not just that she has this secret life, that she has a separate identity. Um, she's dissociated, um, herself from this character that she's created. Uh, Of course, you know, in typical Cohen fashion, you don't know who's created who, but, uh, she tries to kind of break it off with this other, uh, personality inside of her and, and this life in order to start her life with, um, one of her co-workers who uh is proposing uh to her um and in the uh, most romantic way it, yeah <laughs> could you give me some tea and oh by the way would you like to get married to me <laughs> <laughs> he is the uh he is the complete antithesis to her wild and crazy colorful right. uh, night night persona yeah they he go is. they go boating in the lake uh for wow. for a good time um yeah it's it, they're def- it's definitely um you know uh sharp contrast um and then you know she starts uh receiving uh voice messages from her other personality her other personality provides her former employer with her phone number and starts working again without her say and things uh become more cone like as the uh, other personality begins to take over and tries to convince her that she is actually the the fake, uh, not the not the real Harumi, and that um, that you know uh, she needs to go away in order for her uh, her true personality to take over. Yeah, he uses uh, he employs an amazing device in this with uh, them leaving each other messages on their answering machine. Um, so we don't really know at first, like, you know, at first I thought maybe a sister was calling her. Why are you doing this to yourself? You know, like someone knew that she moonlights. And then we start to realize that her second persona of Maria, 
um, who takes on many personas as a pro- as a uh, sex worker um, throughout right. the series. Like you know, she has her dark raven hair version of herself. She's got this short pixie pink cut that she does. Um, so she has uh, many of personas within her uh, sex work um, that is different from her reality, and her reality is or. We don't know what the reality is. Once again, we're blending that idea of reality and fiction, but the device of leaving messages to each other is fantastic. And we take a real, uh, not only narrative and thematic turn in this, we also take a structural turn in this with the voiceovers uh, playing the tapes, uh, playing for us as uh, we see the images of what she's doing and what's going on. Uh, In her daytime persona, we get the sounds of uh, Maria uh, questioning her, and in the nighttime we have the sounds of uh, of Harumi questioning Maria, and uh, we see them both struggling to rid each other of each other um, to the point where uh, she has some real uh, physical uh, issues with the uh, with her with her struggle. Um, she kind of really breaks down mentally to a point of. Uh, of no return, which uh, in which our friend Shonen Bat shows up to put her out of her misery, um, to to hit her on the head with the bat and fix her problems for her. Um, the answering machine concept really feels like something that could have been in Perfect Blue, and I do wonder mm-hmm. if it was a concept that he mulled over, including in that movie, and ultimately didn't include it. Um, you know, this is kind of one of the loose strands that he had yeah. floating turned, around in turned into a chat. Yeah, it turned into a chat room instead because of the time yeah. of the computer, uh, the Mima's room thing. Yeah, there's some there's some great stuff. We have our we we have our tie into kind of uh, how we finished the last episode, episode two, by uh, Marumi, uh, Harumi uh, visiting uh, Ichi in the hospital and sitting by his bed. So now we know that Ichi also was a uh, was a victim to Little Slugger, and she's visiting him. Uh, on top of the fact that you know she, we get to meet uh, two more characters that'll come up later in the show. We get to meet uh, uh, Hirakawa. Um, who is one of her Johns, right. one of her clients. And we also get to meet uh, the otaku uh, doll guy who has no name, but he, he plays a part and his uh, creations play a part later in the series. Um, so we kind of really get to, as much as this is about her, we're, we're spreading out further into the world. Um, we're starting to realize that um, everything is linked and the links aren't circling back. It just is going further away. Um, as this show progresses, uh, you know, we're spreading. Um, so just like this, uh, just like this idea of this, uh, social disease, this, uh, this, uh, victimhood now is what kind of, uh, um, Maniwa is, uh, is starting to realize what this might be is this idea of people backed into a corner with no other options or visited by this, uh, assailant. Um, so this idea spreads through everyone that like, you know, as Ichi sits up and tells her, you know, I was I was trapped. I didn't know what to do, and then I prayed for Little Slugger to come, and he did. And it's almost like she also kind of realizes that's a, that's an option, that's a way of means of escape, is to also pray for uh, Little Slugger to come and put her out of her uh, misery. Um, it's very reminiscent of the uh, kind of uh, 
suicide trends that have happened mm. throughout Japanese uh, history over the last century, um, and which obviously will come up again in, in an episode later on in the series. Like, there is this sense of, like... Uh, and it also comes up in the episode with the um, with the old women. Um, like, I this why can't this happen to me? I want this kind of glory and fame of uh, being attacked by little slugger or shonen bat. Um, you know, there's uh, it, it, not only is there this collective psychosis of um, this feeling of being unable, un, out of control in your life and, and overwhelmed, but that psychosis is doubled down on by this solution of being beaten unconscious um, by this <laughs> mystical uh, attacker who shows up whenever you're in need um, to yeah, put you out of uh, your misery. Well, and it's 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 crazy because uh, you know I'm kind of we're jumping a little ahead here, but as we realize that the Shonen Bat character um, is is kind of like the bitter medicine to take, where the Maromi yeah. is the uh, is the uh, is the pink, the pink uh, you know flavorful berry medicine that isn't so hard to take, but is just as uh, is just doing the same thing as the other one, which is masking the true problems and removing right. you from your your reality. Um, so, and and throughout the episode, we also you know as 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 usual, Cone, we have uh, layers of uh, uh, besides this struggle, we have. Uh, uh, societal, uh, what what a woman is expected. This whole idea of marriage and uh, what is your, uh, you know, what your purpose is and what your what your dreams and goals are. Are they your goals? Are they your dreams? Um, you know, to get married is this your as a, as a woman in society? Is this your role? Is this is what you're meant to be? Even if it's uh, even if it's not something that is exciting or fun, you know, kind of being shackled to a man who just wants you to get her get you tea and do your research and carry your books around versus uh kind of being in control of your own life your own sexual desires um your own wants and needs uh there you know we're playing it with those concepts as well i think there's a great line where uh you know i don't know if this is a thing it must be um this whole like uh picking out a wedding dress and getting a nice picture taking in a fake chapel so you can show everyone you got married even though you might be mm -hmm. getting like a quick civil service and she says like oh this is like a real wedding and it's so so fake and so uh for the camera it's that instagram ready kind of thing where uh you know you take the good picture to show off even though your reality is completely different from what you're presenting to the world which right ties into of course kinda, yeah, yeah, ties, yeah ties into her whole story which yeah. is yeah, All right, fantastic. Ep episode four. This episode is this four. is the ickiest. I, I mean, this oh. is a tough episode. Uh, and you know, I mean, again, like if if you think three is dark, then you're here. And uh, this is this is about a guy who's not a good guy. <laughs> no, this is Hirokawu. He's a police officer. Um, we get to we get to discover that he's friends with uh, Ikari, um, the police detective. Uh, they have a they chat. They go out drinking together. They must have gone together uh, at the academy or were beat cops together at some point. But uh, where Ikari has moved up to detective, Herkawu uh, uh, is like a station chief, one of those uh, people that runs the uh, small uh, police booths that uh, are in each prefecture in each town. And, uh, 
he is horrible. <laughs> he's he's tied with the mob. He's extorting the mob for money so that um, he can look, build a dream house for his family. For his because family. he's a family man. Yes, uh, I want to take care of my family, but also at the same time, he uh, he abuses his power by uh, going to the strip clubs, seeing uh, seeing uh, sex workers. He uh, he's a client of. Uh, of uh, Maria, um, he insists on being called Daddy. Um, when he finds out he can't see Maria anymore, he visits a new girl, and uh, he gets really mad when she doesn't call him Daddy, and he gets almost uh, very aggressive and uh, violent with her. Um, and he gets backed into a corner when someone more powerful and more slick, as a mob boss, discovers this guy is grafting his uh, his lower uh, henchmen. That he uh, he comes in and starts uh, pressuring him to owe him money, uh, pay back all the money he's been extorting, um, and so he turns to crime as his only means. Uh, not only like real crime, like robbing uh, a bank or you know using that that way. He he's like the lowliest of low crimes. He's a purse snatcher, uh, you know, wearing a you know totally emasculating him, wearing a pink mask. <laughs> Um, you know, in a sweatsuit, and he's on a bicycle. That's too small. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that's too small for him. It's a kid's bike. It's probably his daughter's bike. Right. Um, it's a total like he turns from this of uh, you know you know masculine like visiting strip clubs, drinking, heavy drinking, you know, extorting. He's the big man, and this character, who we later in the series discover to be. Uh, potentially gay and also sleeping with younger men uh when we get to the the final episode we see a clip you know as we're revisiting every single character as uh things are being destroyed uh we see him getting out of bed with a a a coded very young boy um so he's being emasculated uh by someone who is coded as uh, potentially gay as well so he has this whole thing and it's it is uh he starts kind of uh going into this manga he likes to read called a man's way um which is this total buff uh beefcakey type uh dude who uh you know total chuck norris uh kind of like lone hero walks into a town and makes things uh um makes things more difficult uh, you know, you know, beats up all the guys, uses violence as a solution, all with this code of honor that exists with men, um, and he's forced to, and he so he justifies all of his actions with this uh, manga that he reads as his uh, solution and his justification for his violent actions, um, and it comes to a head with this really disturbing uh, home invasion scene that he performs after he starts doing. Uh, he starts taking these drugs to help him kind of uh, uh, just, you know, repress uh, any morality that he has to continue to uh, get this money for the mob. And it, fortunately, uh, it doesn't get too graphic, but there is the implication here that he rapes the daughter when she walks in um, and then is attacked by Shonen Bat Um and so we kind of expect the episode to end uh, quietly, <laughs> but it's normal and it's in, normal. Yes, manner. yes, and move into the next um, victim in the in the fifth episode. But instead, 
he gets up and Shonen Bat is as surprised as we are to discover that he is has not been incapacitated and he uh, chases down Shonen Bat and beats the crap out of him thereby With breaking shoe. the cycle of, uh, of these episodes yes <laughs> takes off his shoe hits him in the head and then beats yeah, him throws off. it at him right yeah and gets uh, kind of lauded as a hero the guy who uh, the guy who captured finally captured ended this nightmare this uh, this assailant um, yeah it's a uh, and the whole time we're seeing him build his house, um, you know, he's building this dream house for his family while also dealing with uh, those issues. And it's uh, it is it is a really good uh, it is a uh, it is a character study on someone who is deplorable. And we get to watch how he, you know, what his struggles are. Yes, his goal may be noble to build a home for his family, but. Also, what's the point of that? If you're building a yeah. if you're building a house for your family off of corruption, lies, and evil deeds, then what kind of family man are you? What is the what is the purpose of this? There, and, there's uh, certainly a father daughter theme running throughout the series. Um, yes, you know um, whether whether it's Hirakawa or um, Sukiko with her father. You know the fear of of him uh, punishing her. Um, we get this scene where uh little girls who is that the is that hirakawa who uh she asks to marry him uh oh yeah said, it is hirakawa yeah, yeah. it's a taiko 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 yeah yeah um you know and he says oh, i'm already married to your mother um you know i i I don't want to pick it apart too much, but the, it's definitely there throughout throughout the um, the series. Yeah, no, there is a there is a father father daughter relations or just a parentage, you know, as well. There's a uh, that runs throughout from because uh, because then we realize at the end well, why this is why this is also a theme that's kind of bubbling under the surface um, in typical cone fashion everything means something more than uh, what we take it at face value um so yeah so this episode ends with a surprise and we move into uh episode five, five the weirdest yeah not the weirdest whole, uh, no not the weirdest today, it's, the, it, it's the it's the biggest i think it's the biggest turn because it's the first turn yes so you're kind of like whoa this is this series is not what i thought it was going to be at all yeah, this is like when we discovered who killed Laura Palmer, and you're like, okay, well now we know what the hell's going to happen next. And then the <laughs> Wine tastings, just, of course. It just yeah, takes a turn. <laughs> no, the, yeah, this is this is the um, the the cheerleader uh, uh, storyline from the from the second season of Twin <gasps> Peaks. Oh, um, so, so I, I mean, the, there's very clear. Um, echoes of millennium actress in this episode yes because the investigators who are interviewing this suspect uh who is potentially shown in bat uh who we learn later is is just an imposter um yeah, his name is M- makoto yes get inserted into the video game that he uh, imagines himself to be the hero of um it's kind now, of, it's, is it a video game or is it like a role playing game or is it an online role playing game? I have I, I couldn't kind of 
you know, with that guide, it felt like a Dungeons and Dragons monster manual um, that they're kind of referencing. So I couldn't tell uh, if it was a video game or they're just really into a role playing game. Um, I, I but, guess I assumed it was a video game just because we're seeing the visuals of it. But you're right; yeah. it doesn't necessarily have to be. I mean, the other thing is it, it's very, very similar to Zelda, and and yes, I mean Goma obviously uh, yeah. is from Zelda, and although it has been used in other games, I was trying to Google around like what what that where that name comes from. It doesn't appear to have come from anything other than Zelda. Okay, so that's yeah. So it it tell you know it is probably that final. It's probably an amalgam, Final Fantasy and uh, yeah. Dungeons and Dragons and just role playing games in general. Yeah, it's uh yeah he uh we get to we get to start they start the interrogation of him and uh, we you know we start to realize that this character is living in a false reality where he is uh he is this decreed holy warrior, someone who's been prophesized to be the one who kills Goma. Goma is this negative energy that jumps from person to person and manifests as these monsters and the only way you can uh the only only holy warriors can see this uh, negative aura in people so we're kind of start moving into more of a traditional uh anime type style of animation um more kind of like in the vein of a uh like a uh like ninja scroll uh you know just this this idea of kind of like more traditional anime where uh, we have a character and a hero fighting monsters uh the editing the uh transitions start to turn more into that manner and we have this character and our characters follow in his uh delusions uh as themselves much like in uh, millennium actress where we have our interviewer and our cameraman following around within the world and just like Millennium Actress, yep. one character gets more into it than the other. And Maniwa, Maniwa <laughs> takes on wearing the, role the costumes. As, yeah. Oh yeah, takes on the role as a what does he call it? It's not a prophet, but a uh, he takes on the role. Is as it a, a wizard? Uh, not even. It's, it's more like a uh, like a, a script keeper or uh, like someone who's yeah. uh, jotting down this hero's uh, trials and tribulations, and he's the keeper of the book of information and. Uh, he uh he follows along and he's he's getting into it more and he's the one who kind of unlocks that for every fan fantasy uh fight or attack or something that's going on in his mind his delusioned brain um it it correlates to something that happened in the real world so this monster he uh attacked is actually uh we find out is uh ushi and this other person he attacked is uh is uh hirakawa and so we have these these characters that we're now he's starting to piece together and uh ichi uh, not ichi uh, excuse me akari our detective is completely just in denial and not wanting to you know he's just like this is stupid we're not <laughs> we're not playing this guy's game he should be answering our questions straightforward you know he this is where we really get the disconnect between the two detectives in terms of their uh their overall outlook of what their worlds are supposed to be and uh where one is uh quick to be infected by this idea which uh ultimately will help him uh solve the mystery wherein the other one just kind of takes the staunch i'm not being a part of this which creates his own sense of uh dis uh disassociation with the world uh later in his own episode so um it's a turning point in terms of visual style, it's a turning point. In terms of uh, 
wait a second, this isn't what I thought it was. How can we have caught the bad guy by episode five? And we start to realize that uh, this character, this Makoto character, is a uh, copycat. He's not the Shonen Bat character because he has no memory of hurting uh, uh, Tsukiko. Yeah. He never attacked her, so now we... Well, who attacks Tsukiko again? So we've it's kind of like a red herring but it's also part of a mystery uh, answers to what's happening and but yeah th- um, that's the i mean they're they it points them towards the next character um within the game itself uh this old woman who looks just like this uh uh sort of i forget the name of it but is it like ido or something it's a um uh mijot that's what it is. It's like a tribe, an, an old tribe of yes. uh, uh, aliens or magical yeah. creatures who just happen to look exactly like this woman um, who witnessed the first attack. Um, and this, I mean, it definitely kind of breaks open the potential uh, for the rest of the series. Um, but it also feels like kind of the epilogue to the first act a little bit, like that that we've capped off kind of um, what we're, what we've done through the first four episodes. And then it sets up what's to come in particular with Maniwa um, and his kind of descent into his own psychosis. Um, so it, it's a, it's a very odd episode, but it feels crucial in sort of its, its structural uh use as a transitional piece from act one to act two yeah and this is the this is the link that ties everyone together um so now we have a direct core direct connection between uh ichi and uh uishi and how they were attacked by this character and how they attacked uh um you know hirakawa and how everyone is now fully connected by this except all of a sudden we realize that Tsukiku is still left out of the equation and it it helps uh, move our yeah move our story forward into its uh into the next arc of uh kind of what's you know what we are to expect and what we are never going to expect because it kind of just keeps on going so we move into our sixth episode it's called a uh, fear of a direct hit and this is where we learn about uh uh, the old woman, uh, who is the homeless woman who witnessed kind of what had happened uh, that night uh, to Sukiko. Um, she collects what we think is kind of garbage and trash, but really she's collecting kind of like uh, mementos and these little things. She hides them all in her, uh, her kind of uh, tarp city kind of home that she has uh, in the same district where a lot of the homeless people are staying. Uh, which is uh, echoes of uh, Tokyo Godfathers when we see all the kind of tent city yep. shanty town that the homeless characters live in. Um, and we get this, her telling a story about missing her granddaughter who's gone missing, which we then flash to this idea, this character, uh, Teiko, who is this young woman who was wandering the streets of Tokyo, um, uh, just a... Uh, uh, looking for something, also uh, dealing with a phone call, kind of like uh, re- reflections towards the Maria episode. Uh, she's using the phone to communicate to someone who we don't know while she processes memories of uh, her childhood and what's missing. Um, 
it almost feels like it's the old lady telling the story of her own childhood at some points. Uh, it feels like a flashback. Um, and then as the episode progresses, we realize that they're not connected at all. That's not her granddaughter. Um, they have no relation except for they're just two uh, female characters who have been uh, disconnected from their families due to circumstances beyond their control and that they are both wandering. Um, so there's the potential that Taiko's future would be the old lady's future if she chose to continue down that path. Um, but um, we discover that Taiko is the daughter of uh, Hirakawa, our grubby, horrible, uh, purse-snatching uh, detective. Um, and she fantasizes and uh, idolizes her father in their relationship um, until she realizes that her dad has built this house for them and has set up a camera in her room so we can take pictures of her uh, changing. Just a great guy. He's just an um, all-around stand-up uh, guy. All-around great dad. Yeah. Father of the year. Um, we also get the sort of first rumblings of a storm coming, um, mm -hmm. which, you know, sets up kind of the the bigger uh, climax later on in the series. Um, and we go more into this idea of um, the, uh, the, um, the copycat. Like, there's the sense to, like... <sighs> That one thing I really like about this idea that there's a copycat is that it it underscores the blurred lines between reality and fiction. You know, he's we think that he's the real killer when in fact he's a copy. He's a you know a a, a facsimile of the um, of the attacker and because of that like relationship between. Uh, the copycat and reality there's a distortion in that relationship and that further distorts the line between truth and fiction um, and as we are watching these two women who we think will sort of come together and then we realize that they don't actually come together we ourselves are making these connections in reality that are actually uh, fictional connections that don't really exist so yes. the structure of the episode sort of underscores the revelations that have come in the rest of the series that um, you can build up these narratives in your mind that uh, because of what you're seeing that are in fact only in your mind they're not um, genuine yeah, connections play. yeah they don't play out it's this idea that you're kind of uh, what you're what you assume is going to be, uh, you know, this, we're, we're so used to culturally, uh, television and narrative and story. We're kind of making these assumptions of what, how this is going to play out and we're subverting our, he's subverting our expectations, which also plays into the theme of, uh, us making these, uh, false narratives in our head that, uh, are not true, which, uh, leads us into this idea that we're also uh we're also can fall victim to these types of uh situations these types of uh, paranoia that is uh imbuing not imbuing uh that is infecting all of these uh characters in in the entire series um we we definitely get this more of this investigation into what's going on we get this storm that's coming 
Um, and we get this idea that uh, nothing is kind of what it seems, um, which is uh, is where uh, Maniwa uh, picks up and takes into his uh, next episode. Um, but we have this this episode has that storm. It has that uh, has that uh, illusion uh, of what um, false memory of what our memories and how they can taint uh, what is reality, um, which is a huge a huge idea of like you know she remembers uh, Taiko remembers uh, a rosy childhood uh, painted with all these beautiful memories of what's going on. Uh, her subjectivity doesn't realize that the father is shady and a criminal and a horrible person. Maybe he hid it from her or maybe she just doesn't remember it because her interactions are limited. I mean, with him whoring about all the time, going to strip clubs and doing the stuff he does, I can't imagine he's home actually being a yeah. good dad. So, you know, she is either, uh, she is either, uh, uh, putting these memories, only remembering the good stuff, you know, kind of, uh, how, how one does your brain only tries to remember the good stuff so it can process trauma or, uh, she is, uh, building this false narrative of kind of what their relationship is so she can, uh, uh, you know, process kind of all this stuff. So it's, a uh, it's quite it's quite destructive and uh and uh defeating when uh, we find out why she's on the streets and uh she goes to contemplate suicide to throw herself in the river when uh she sees herself in the river we get that double again that feeling that uh uh that uh things are starting to double and we get that uh shadow that false character and uh then she realizes that the person that's in the river is the old woman and the old woman uh, washes away, and she kind of doesn't. She doesn't commit the act. She, she instead of killing herself, she instead decides to wish for a shonen bat to um, take everything away, take it all away from me. And it's uh, I want to be nothing. I think she says, and which is the mantra her father is saying to psych himself up um, to to uh commit these brutal acts uh the rape of the girl and the uh the tying up in the home invasion he keeps on shouting i am nothing i'm an empty vessel i'm nothing uh to kind of get himself uh, psyched up and so uh we realize that they both have the same wants they both want to be nothing to remember nothing and uh little slugger comes along and uh hits her in the back of the head which sends a whole new mystery of wait a second, if he's in jail, then mm. who's the real slugger? And if this person's still out on the street, then what the hell's going on? And she wakes up and doesn't remember any of anything. Yes, which is a blessing for her father and for her. But, you know, it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like that movie old boy where, uh, the daughter doesn't remember, but the father has to carry the memory yeah. of the horrible act in his head. And he, in turn, becomes that doting father, but he is also a shell of a human being, knowing uh, what he's done and how much he's lost and how much she is just... Uh, she takes on that uh, a very curious animation style, a very uh, that face. Um, her mouth gets into that... Uh, it's like this bizarre grin that is really unsettling she has this uncanny smile that uh 
really skeeves me out <laughs> uh, when she wakes up yeah. from her uh, her slumber and she has no memory. And so she kind of is always uh, staring and smiling dumbly, not knowing what's going on because uh, she has completely emptied of her brain. Well, the good news is that um, episode seven is uh, a lot more upbeat. No, it's, it's not. <laughs> um, this is like, this is just like a sweaty, like grimy um fever dream of an episode i mean there's Mm. definitely you know has been darkness up until this point but the tone of this it just feels really different um this episode seven where maniwa really starts to kind of um lose his mind a little bit uh and uh, you know, becomes deeper into this uh, concept of um, Shonen Bats uh, seeking out these people who are who are in need. He starts to have these dreams, um, and then you know, uh, Kazuka is is murdered, or uh, they assume it's suicide, but he he was uh, he was probably I don't know. What do you think happened to him? I think it was suicide. Um... But it was because he's backed into a corner. When they start to make him realize, uh, I think uh, Ikari is the one who starts to really kind of make him realize that right. every, all, yeah. everything he's been doing is a lie. He's been living yeah. a lie. It's all a fantasy. And when he destroys his fantasy to the point of him having to realize what he's done, he's attacked innocent people with a bat for no reason because he thinks he's this holy warrior. Um, I think he finally backs himself into a corner and... Um, he kills himself and because at this point uh shonen bat hasn't killed anyone um he's hit them and taken them out uh and that sense of being injured uh created a sense of being a victim which allowed them to wiggle their way out of whatever pressures they were under so you know uh, Sukiko, instead of having to meet her deadline to have this new character, is given this uh, free reign because she's obviously been injured. And uh, uh, Kawazu, the uh, the, dete- the uh, detective, the, uh, the the tabloid guy, he also kind of gets out of some of his uh, his debts that he was uh, trying to to work out. And everyone is given an out. And this is the first character that his only way out is is death because he has no, with his false reality completely shattered, he doesn't want to go on living. Uh, later, we discover that he is the character of Fox, Fox yeah, who is part of a suicide web group um, for people who want to know how to kill themselves in all the different ways. And um, so he's obviously a, someone who has been flirting with this idea as he realizes this world is not meant for him. Um, and with Shonen Bat being there, um, it serves two purposes. Uh, you know, what did he kill him? Did he is he the one who helped him? Or now we start to realize that maybe all of these incidences are in the brains, the subjective brains of the people who are getting injured, and they're not really getting hurt by an external force they're getting hurt by an internal idea um which you know if shonen bat is there and he disappears he ghosts into a wall at the end of that episode um so now who is he what is he he's an idea he's he's uh he's this uh 
this thought, this uh, disease that of the mind that kind of is being passed from person to person as a means of escape. So we start getting into those concepts of, uh, you know, um, you know, those suicide clubs of people who just rash of suicides as once someone starts doing it, it starts this chain of events of other people following suit. Or you start getting into these ideas of kind of like the... Uh, I think there was this uh, famous case of this town who everyone just started dancing one day. And as people came across these dancing folk, they continued dancing as well. And, you know, it just went on for like a week, you know, people passing out, people uh, being malnourished and starving. And, you know, then all of a sudden it, it disappeared. I can't remember the the actual name of the event and where it went in history or where it was. But I just I remember reading about that for uh, this episode, but uh, it's this idea of this uh, social disease that is being passed uh, from pe- person to person um, as a means to escape that uh, that world. Um, and to go back, you know, you have your Maniwa, who is after witnessing this, after seeing, after seeing kind of the things he's been seeing and uh, witnessing. Uh, he's he's his brain is starting to break trying to process all this information. And uh, the format of the film of this episode, we have this character huddled over a radio and all this pieced together radio equipment uh, broadcasting uh, these, you know, broadcasting his story to whoever will listen. And we cut from that to the police investigation that's going on. Um, And, uh, you know, as Maniwa starts piecing together what's going on and uh, they discover that. This is the episode where we discover that Sukiko may have hit herself, correct? Yeah, the uh, when he's looking, he he looks into her past, right, and finds uh, out that she was attacked by. No, that's that's Holy Warrior. That's late. Uh, no, that's a uh, that's a uh, Radar Man. That's later. Oh, okay. Oh, this I thought episode... there was. I thought there was like hints of it though earlier. That's that, there is. I, I think it's I think not that old... explicit this early. Yeah, no, because the because he starts buying into the story. He starts buying into this uh, this concept, this uh, this uh, shonen bat idea, and how it's like this uh, cosmic right. mystery thing. He starts seeing the old man as doubled. They make this weird spiritual connection at some point. He starts seeing all the symbols. He starts buying into kind of like the. Uh, the QAnon of everything, like the multiple <laughs> heads floating yes. in space. Yeah, exactly. And he starts buying into that where uh, Ikari doubles down on reality at this episode. And he's the one who does some more investigating and finds this lead pipe in the sewer next to where it was. And it matches the description of the wounds. And he's the one who says, you hit yourself. Oh, is this this the one where she, she gets hit? in front of them and falls yes. to the ground yeah yeah okay. she gets hit by the bat in front of them even though nothing is nothing there happens. she falls yeah. to the ground right. and takes another beating uh and that's where it just kind of gets even you know that's when it's weirder and that's when uh they discover that i think at the end of the episode is when they go and see that uh the kid uh, the copycat has killed himself and that's right. when you know and it all starts gets, to yeah. becomes metaphysical as opposed to a, a physical attack and then ikari has to resign and um Maniwa takes a takes a rest. Yeah, he yeah he gives him a leave of absence, vacation, and Maniwa comes back from vacation against the rules to go investigate this. Because uh, he now thinks that uh, Shonen Bat is uh, is targeting. He's the one who decides that at this point, Shonen Bat is 
attacking people who are backed into a corner with no other options left in life. Like he's a serial a serial attacker. He has an MO now. He has a modus operandi. He has a uh, he has a uh, a pattern, and uh, that pattern is broken when we discover that um, this thing is a ghost. This thing is a phantom. Um, and yeah, and Ikari retires at that point because uh, a, because he let a person uh, kill himself under his protection, and it's a kid. He's still you know he's a middle he's a he's a like a first year high school student. He's young, so it's very disgraceful, and uh, he takes he retires in shame. So the next three episodes are kind of one-offs a little bit. There are connections, of course, to um, both Shonen Bat and to Harumi, but um, they they serve as sort of self-contained stories a little bit. The, these characters don't um, continue in any real way. Uh, yeah, this is where the show really takes a turn of like, what? what wait, what's going on here? <laughs> I mean, I think wait. Happy Fa- Family Planning, which is the next episode, is the one that is the most sort of a self-contained little short story about um, three people who met online uh, as part of a suicide pact and were going to kill themselves. And one of them turns out to be a little girl. Yeah, we have our... And hilarity ensues. Oh my God. Well, it's so, it's the darkest, it's the, it's the blackest, pitched black humor that you could possibly imagine as we have a suicide pack going around thinking of ways to kill themselves, not being happy with those ways or failing at those ways, but also trying to keep this little girl from killing herself, but not realizing that, you know, uh, you know they shouldn't be killing themselves either. They're like, you know, whatever reasons they're giving her for staying alive, uh, they could take their own medicine and also think about it. So uh, we have Zebra, who is this very large, uh, coded trans, would you say? Like, uh, maybe maybe moving that way? Uh, um, I, I definitely think uh, gay. I'm not sure trans, uh, but, the, uh, I mean... In in some in some way not not heteronormative. Yes, no, for sure. Like uh, with with uh, the length of the hair and the heart pendant on, I, I I coded it as moving towards that, but maybe something you know the reason why they wanted to kill uh, themselves uh, potentially is because of unacceptance or loss or uh, something of that nature. Uh, we have uh, Fuyubachi who is a. Uh... <laughs> like a man out of time he's like a dandy he's got these uh old school colonial curls and uh very very uh, pe- peculiar way of dressing and then you have your uh kamome who is a little girl and they know where to find each other to go to their suicide pack because they're all decided to wear a maromi backpack uh to meet each other so we're starting to see now as the episode progresses that the maromi dog is becoming more and more prominent. Uh, it's becoming more and more a pop culture uh, signifier in the background. Uh, it's on T-shirts. Kids are carrying dolls. It's on keychains. It's on posters. Um, and now we have our biggest uh, item to date, which are these oversized Maromi backpacks. Uh, cutesy, uh, fluffy, furry Maromi backpacks. They're they're like stuffed animal backpacks. And uh, our characters meet to uh, to go out about their business of trying to end their lives. And 
at the same time tried to keep uh, Kamome from uh, also ending her life. So it's uh, it has it has a feel of a Tokyo Godfathers type family uh, situation where we have these oddball characters who you normally would not fit together fitting together in a manner that makes a uh, impromptu family. Uh, I guess that's the other reason why maybe I coded uh, Zebra as someone who was uh, potentially not heteronormative, maybe transitioning into more of a feminine character because he takes on the role of mom uh, in this in this family uh, pretty, uh, pretty definitely. Well, yeah, I mean, you could argue that it's a similar structure to Tokyo Godfathers, right? Yeah, the the humor like like Tokyo of Godfathers, it mixes this uh, idea of humor and uh, really dark comedy with also this uh, path uh, pathos, this idea of humanity and kind of everything is valuable and uh, everyone has a story and is unique and this this episode is so dark and and kind of uh, messed up, you know, as you see these characters uh, try suicide and failing and then going to the message boards to ask another method that they might work. And I think at one point they do, uh, they release gas into this uh, room, kind of like smoke inhalation, while also taking mm-hmm. a bunch of pills. And then, of course, a wrecking ball comes in and opens up air in there and they <laughs> realize that, you know, they failed. Or did they? Um and then we move into them going to jump in front of a train. But just before they jump in front of the train, another a businessman <laughs> jumps in front of the train. And then they realize how horrible that would be to die. Like, oh, my God, that's disgusting. I don't want to die that way. Um, and we get a little glimpse. Zebra sees the character walk out of the train and say, oh, that sucked. That wasn't how I wanted to go. And then walks away. So now we're kind of left with, a, well, did he not die? Or, or you know, are they st- dead? Or are they dead? Already. Yeah, yeah, exactly. There are moments like that. Certainly, the end of the episode implies that they are potentially already ghosts. Oh yeah, because they don't cast a shadow. Yeah, and they and they and they kind of accept that fate as something that they uh, they're happy with because they're all together and they're still like having these adventures, which is kind of a bittersweet ending. You know, we know they're dead, but as wandering spirits, they're finally getting to. Uh, not be alone because i think that's the problem with most of these is that they're all all lonely you know they all have that that uh that sense that uh something is uh that they're missing something so uh they all have each other in in the end and uh we don't have any ties besides the maromi backpacks we have no ties in this episode to kind of what's going on until they go to a bathhouse to uh take a rest because they decide that uh you should cleanse yourself and and take care of yourself before you kill yourself because that'll assure that you're going to have a good death and so they uh they go to this bathhouse and they start to talk about uh fox who we discover is makoto who is the uh shadow uh the shadow uh, little slugger and then they start talking about little slugger and as they're talking about this we see behind them almost like a shadow puppet play of little slugger attacking someone in the room next door and uh they're talking about the violence and how little slugger is now killing people basically and uh you know since makoto's death now the the uh the attacks are becoming more and more violent and uh as you see in the shadow uh he is growing larger as well sometimes and they are so excited to see him (laughs) 
Well, and they, there's this great vocal rhythm of I, what are they saying? Like, wouldn't that be nice? Ah, they, they all sigh together at the same yeah. time. That they wouldn't have to make the decision that someone would come and take that decision for yeah. them. It's reminiscent in the next episode of, of course not, of course not. Um, <laughs> yeah, with the hand I, wave. Yeah, yeah. Um, I did the hand wave. You just can't see me on the, the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, no, I mean, obviously, like, this is, this could certainly be seen as tasteless. Um, I read somewhere that the, uh, the hanging scene was cut from the UK version of the series uh, for, I think there's, uh, you know, rules around that sort of thing in the UK, similar to their animal cruelty laws. Um, and, uh, I think it's uh, probably difficult to, for people in the U S to sort of understand how something like this would be taken in Japan, considering the, uh, discourse around suicide there, that it's just, you know, they have this huge history with it. And it's, uh, I think it's, it's, it's a much more complicated history than in the u.s where in the u.s it's kind of a taboo subject that we don't like to talk about like there's a perception of deficiency within the person for um you know uh giving up basically um you know we, we have that that kind of negative attitude towards towards somebody who would be considering this rather than viewing it as um you know an illness that um that needs that needs to be addressed um, and is not, you know, the fault of, of them or anybody else. Um, but it, it's delivered in, in such a sort of light, unassuming fashion that it's kind of difficult for even somebody like me who has had, you know, suicides in their family, like to kind of be mad at it. I don't know. It's, it's just, it's so, uh, the contrast between like the darkness of the topic and, um, especially like the little girl, um, you know, acting so much like a stereotypical, almost like anime character. Um, it's, uh, it's pretty absurd. It's, 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 it's super absurd. I guess it's a little I, bit like the opening of Harold and Maude, you know, where he's well, trying yeah, to kill himself. Harold and Maude, the whole of Better Off Dead. Yeah. Uh, you have, you have that that absurdist humor that has run through these suicide narratives. Uh, it's something that's been played with before. And that, that hanging scene, you know, uh, the idea that they're cutting her rope so she won't die. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, Zebra stumbles a bit and starts to struggle uh, because uh, yeah, he's trying to get someone to count it off. And then, uh, you know... Uh, uh, Fuyubachi's still like asking him to count it off, even though uh, they're they're struggling with the noose as they're kind of dangling. And then the little girl gets all excited because it looks fun and starts dancing uh, and jumping off the noose. It's the whole thing is just absolutely absurd, and it is a it is a style of humor that you know uh, that could be considered uh, callow or tasteless yeah. to someone who has. Uh, visited upon by that kind of tragedy but in the same respect like if you are a fan of story and you know your storytelling you know that this is the type of story where these characters will not kill themselves that they will find each other and they will find peace in having themselves together like so many other types of stories that revolve around suicide packs um 
But, you know, spoiler, you know, they have died at some point in their trials. I, yeah. I think it, I think it was their first attempt when they kind of Yeah. they had they were in the building together. Um this because... this episode and the next episode also actually the the all three of these also remind me pretty strongly of X-Files. Like mm-hmm. there's um you know both in their kind of one-off spooky nature but but even the more kind of humorous um, episodes of the series. I mean, in particular, uh, episode nine that we're going to talk about, etc. Um, it reminds me of you know something like Clyde Bruckman's Final Repose. Um, oh yeah, and just like acknowledging the kind of wacky nature that is inherent in this kind of content, um, and really like just having a huge amount of fun with it. Um, and uh and then yeah. again like the twist at the end which both of these episodes have um and to a lesser degree melamaromi has that too but um but the uh the the fact that you know they're potentially dead here is kind of like um what's it called uh that well it's certainly like a twilight zone twist but um oh yeah did you ever but see? Did you ever read uh, Goosebumps books? Oh yeah, completely. Say cheese and die, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> or you know, even even uh, even Beetlejuice, you know, you yeah. have these characters who right. don't know they're dead until they're till they're right. made aware of it, then they have fun with it. Um, you know, there's lots of lots, and and you could also that X Files uh, comparison is pretty apt too, because you could also take a Kari and uh, yes. Maniwa. And uh, yeah. in Maniwa, as kind of like it's a Scully and Mulder, where uh, Maniwa buys into the, right. the conspiracies, and Ikari refuses and wants to have hard evidence uh, to back up whatever things they have. So, no, it's a it's it's an intro. It's a it's a nice break for sure. Um, it it's good that this episode comes before our next episode, episode nine, etc., because it gives you a sense of how this can spin off into different avenues that you might not expect uh as of yet because as the show progresses you know we have we have a style that we're kind of getting into a mystery and then that kind of gets pulled out from under us and it becomes this metaphysical mystery and then another layer is removed or changed which kind of uh, leads us to doubt all of our expectations and then as we're doubting them the most in uh, megahertz episode 7 Happy Family Planning episode eight comes along and completely just gives you a break from the story, but gives you the most absurd, dark yeah. humor, um, which I think plays the most into from everything I've read and all the interviews uh, plays into Cone's sense of humor uh, the most uh the most aptly i think this is his dark humor that he injects in so many of his things and we move into etc um which, which has is, its own share of dark humor for sure oh, completely yeah. and it's it it's it's a mini anthology so right. we have kind of like an anthology type story that is what we've been viewing and we move into this other anthology of these old uh, these ladies housewives um we have a couple of uh seasoned veterans and the new girl who just moved into the building <laughs> and they're all trying to you know do the whole topping each other with uh, a rumor or a story they've heard and you know doing the complete uh you know 
uh, you're not going to tell anyone, are you? And then they all give their hand waves, and it gets to a shorthand to the point where you just see the new housewife just make the hand gesture and not have to say anything at this point. And it's so robotic in, in her motions to uh, symbolize that she's a part of it, but really she's never accepted. Her stories are the ones that are so right. so ridiculous <laughs> they cannot be believed, even though everyone's stories are ridiculous. The doctor's story is hilarious, but the way that Cone chooses to, like... Animated, animated. It's oh, it's fucking terrifying. It's disturbing. <laughs> There's beads of sweat which look like little yes. alien pores coming off. Yes. Them. Uh, yeah, no, yeah. it's a very nice baby. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, so the stories they tell, and this is this ties into we discover the idea of um, as people uh, talking about something gives it strength and energy. So as more people talk about Little Slugger. Uh, the more it gains energy and momentum and grows bigger and stronger because we're feeding into this uh, paranoia. Uh, so that's what this episode is basically encapsulating. It's this idea that the more we feed into it, the more people who want to be a part of this story, the more energy this uh, this uh, idea grows. So we have a story about a kid cramming for a, a, an exam, and while he's taking the exam, he uh, sneezes and... The things he memorized pour out of his nose and he goes to the bathroom and he's vomiting and pouring out of his nose all of his things and he's freaking out. Uh, So we have this pressure of school kind of idea and then little slugger shows up and knocks his head and all the all of his thoughts and ideas come pouring out as and when I say this, if you haven't seen the episode, it's physical words. It's like tight print coming out of the person's nose. It's very, uh, very visual, very funny. Um, and very disturbing, like just the vomiting up of all these tight prints <laughs> is really gross. Um, and then we go into another tale of this uh, this birth. Um, oh wait, oh it's the um, I think it's the mother in law. Oh, the mother in law story, one. yeah. Um, Which could could be a real story of a of a of a put upon housewife killing her mother in law because she's right. just done with her brow beating. But, uh, yeah. I mean, I think like the whole like the, I mean these are these are piece, little pieces of story that Cohn had that he decided to sort of sprinkle around. I mean, maybe he came up with some of these um, as he was working on the series, but um, it feels like this uh, again. It's an example of like how what he because he's so consistent thematically and uh, tonally like. He, you could put any of his movies into this little slugger uh, framing and make them work in one way or another, you know? Oh, yeah, completely. So I, I think, um, yeah, it's just an incredibly entertaining episode. Um, and the, the twist ending is, I mean, it's not twist, but it's, uh, it's sort of like an ironic moment. Um, oh, yeah. It's pretty great. Uh, yeah, and just the young ties wife's, it all together. Yeah, the young wife's screenwriter husband who hasn't had a hit yet uh, gets attacked by Little Slugger, and she's more interested in the story so she can share it with the old ladies. Like, uh, she needs a good story. Uh, you know, and the stories go as crazy as uh, Little Slugger uh, causes a uh, spaceship explosion uh, to <laughs> Little Slugger, co- you know, it's just it, well he's it yeah he's the fetus inside of a mother that uh the, with, holding got, the bat yeah and they they got mixed up uh the sperm <laughs> and the egg so the the 
baby isn't related to the parents at all. And then there's the famous uh, romantic story of the the guy who paints the uh, the leaf across this, the way, and then all of a sudden, little slugger's there, and she's <laughs> and everyone's like, "Wait a second, that's isn't that a famous? What are you talking about? This is how I heard it." <laughs> so it's just it plays on all those levels of uh, you know conjecture, rumor mill, yeah, uh, people legend. misremembering. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Um, and this story ends with a beautiful shot of uh, the apartment building complex from above, which gives us the name of the episode, ETC, etc. And so it kind of, this is where he gets to put out all of his ideas and right. thoughts and finish that up, but also tie it to that concept of growing the, growing the myth. Um, because then we get into probably the most bonkers uh, meta oh. uh just we could do a whole podcast yeah. series about this episode uh melomaromi episode number 10 you want to set this one up well i mean i think first i just want to say like i think the structure of these three episodes is really interesting like the way that he chose to order them um because they don't really necessarily need to go in any particular order but i think this because of the intensity of this and the way it kind of leads into some of the other things that happen later on it makes sense as the third of these three and in a way you know happy family planning uh teaches you how to watch etc um there's a little bit of like a okay i can get i can get with this, this like 10 stories within one episode because i just saw something that was completely different and unrelated to what had come before yeah um so Which I just also I find that you into this one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And 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 also like the fact that the guy is a is a, you know, in show business to whatever degree he is and gets attacked um could conceivably lead into what is happening here. Well, yeah, he's the screenwriter that got killed yeah. in for for the next group right. of uh, people. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, he, he's so he it literally leads into it. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, the, well so this opens with uh um in this in the series right the fir- the first moment is the this uh, baseball game within the animated pilot for the Moromi uh animated series that is going to premiere um and it's a it has a very different animation style it's that chibi uh animation style of really over big wide-eyed uh anime which is uh, for kids it's a kids show and the focus is on this guy, uh, Saruta, who is the um, production coordinator. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, he's um, the production manager. And he uh, just gets crapped on all the time because he's making all of these errors, or maybe he's not making all these errors, but they perceive him as being the focus of all of the problems that are surrounding this show, which is uh, quickly coming up on its deadline, and they are worried that they're not going to be able to complete it. But I think... The... If I was Satoshi Khan's production manager, I would have taken this to heart <laughs> so badly. I would have been like, oh my god, he must hate me. <laughs> well, <it's, laughs> I definitely wondered, like, when he thought of this idea. Like, if it was, you know, by episode four, he was like, oh, we gotta include this experience in here. <laughs> yeah. Or if it was something that he initially thought of just from the experience of making his movies. But obviously, like... And, you know, delivering a, a series, as you know, as somebody who has um, worked on both, like delivering a series and delivering it episode by episode is very different than a movie. Like as much as there's 
the pressure and the deadline of a movie. It's still just the one thing. You can't fall behind in a sense in the no. way that you really can with a with a series. Um, so uh, the other thing that's really going on in this episode is these descriptions of the jobs of uh, the people who work on these series. Yeah, I and could have used this episode at the beginning. I of the know. Series. I was just. I mean, it's pretty fascinating, <laughs> right? I mean, there's a lot because I think there's a lot of things that people don't think about when they are um, watching animation um, or or live action for that matter. Um, you know, you kind of wonder, like, okay, well, okay, it, I get what that person's doing, but like, why is that just its own job? You know, that seems like very extreme to just be its own job, but then. You know, he does it in a very economical fashion, but he really breaks down like the complexity involved in each one of these jobs and how, uh, you know, how much pressure is placed on each one of these people in order to make something that you therefore are watching on screen and not having to think about all these jobs that people did. Because if if these people don't do their job, you notice it immediately. Oh, yeah. It's a uh, it's it's absolutely fantastic because, you know, they pause and a and a little cutesy Maromi dog tells you the description of what their job is, but then also kind of like a personal anecdote of like how they are as characters failing or achieving or succeeding in what they're doing, um, and what can go moment. and what can go wrong if they yeah, don't if they screw succeed, up succeed yeah. And at the same time, they're they're producing this show. They're under a deadline. You can't help but think about the show you're watching and how it is being produced right. the same manner under a deadline. And uh, our character starts, uh, you know, becoming the the point of focus of everything that's going wrong. Um, and then we also start to see uh, how quickly this uh, this uh, Shonen Bat stuff is spreading because. Every single character in that episode drops off uh, as a victim to Shonen Bat. So, well, and there's a balance back and forth, right, with him driving in the car trying to deliver the tape. Yes, we get we get our Kona uh, uh, time yeah. time uh, <laughs> time jumps fading off between what is dreams, what is reality, what is past, what is present. Um, it kind of all blends together, much like a fever dream. It's a uh, it's so. It's so stressful, but at the same time, super amusing, and then also yeah. you know, dark. I I have been on that drive that he's been on many times, <laughs> coming home from work on an overnight yeah. where I'm starting to like lose it, and then all of a sudden I wake up and like I think multi you know hours have passed, and they show us that clock, and it just changes to one minute passing. You know, there's the time the time jumps are are crazy, and and we really. We really get to uh, see how um, everyone is falling victim to this. And we get to the point where that opening animation where we see the TV show, we see the TV show, then all of a sudden there's frames missing or there's rough animation put into it as a placeholder for the finished work. Um, uh, We're watching a voice recording session we discover afterwards. So we're getting a real process in history of how... uh, these shows are created in the pressures that everyone is under and we see as each process of as each step of the process completed they are also removed from the process by little slugger (laughs) um 
to the point where the only person that's left is the production manager delivering the tape right to the studio uh, to the broadcaster and they only get it because he's dead in the parking lot with the tape in his hand because he has succumbed to little he's slugger taken as well. rest. yeah oh yeah <laughs> and there's you know finally he finally gets to sleep he finally gets to relax right. so, like the whole episode that guy's trying to take a nap it's, and they're not and nothing <laughs> allows him to do that it's certainly like if you if your kid wants to get into animation and you don't want them to this is a great thing to show. Them. Oh yeah, well this is this is this is a warning. This is yeah. like this is Cone saying never do a TV series. I am I, this experience has been wholly unsatisfying, and I'm going back to movies after this, <laughs> which is crazy because you know we we're talking about this as uh, Cone as as being the he's the creator, the lead writer, but every episode has been directed by someone. He has put a director. Um, in yeah. place uh, he did the key story art for the very first episode and you know he is the the guiding hand uh, because everything in this show falls into his uh, into his purview of the types of uh, concerns and uh, ideas we've had but you know just like this episode this is <laughs> it's just it's fantastic and he's having uh, our character of uh, Saruta is having these kind of nightmare dreams of snapping awake and he's being pursued by Shonen Bat outside the car and then Shonen Bat's in his car with him. Um, there's a section where he goes to deliver the tape and he finds out that he is late uh, for the delivery and so his worst nightmares are coming true, that he's failed uh, completely. But as, we, as he starts to unravel, his animation starts to unravel and he becomes blue line and you're like okay and then you realize it's a nightmare it's 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 absolutely yeah, there's a lot going on. yeah this is the uh, this is the one that would have won the emmy award for <laughs> best best episode for a uh, for a series um because it deconstructs everything from animation itself to the episode to the show we're watching even um everything is deconstructed and it's our it's funny it yeah. also the one thing that we haven't talked about is the fact that these three episodes, Happy Family Planning, etc., and Mel Maromi, also form an ellipsis for time passing. So if you think about an ellipsis, it's uh, shown by two do- three dots, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, dot, dot, dot. And it's three episodes, dot, dot, dot. And time has passed by the time we get to our next episode, mm-hmm. no entry. Um, because at this point... We've we've left off our on our in our in our main storyline. Akari has has had to resign. Little Slugger potentially is dead, but there's this metaphysical. Uh, our other detective has kind of lost his mind and is now uh, broadcasting his his ideas over the radio to anyone who'll listen because no one will listen to him. Uh, we discover that uh, Sukiko may have injured herself. And so now we've taken this break of three episodes, this ellipses passes, and we move back into our storyline, and the world has changed a bit. Um, I don't know. Do you have anything else to say about this? Uh, I mean, I know we can yeah, say we, a million there, there'd things. Yeah, there'd be plenty. I mean, the only other thing I want to say is that I think this, this establishes Maromi as a more significant character for the final three episodes. Yes. You know, we've seen uh, this character and we've seen sort of merchandise and stuff like that. And obviously, oh, we didn't even mention that uh, Maromi talks in the first episode. Uh, oh, yeah. She, she, Dude. 
We've completely <laughs> glossed over the fact that she is having a mental break and yeah. her dog is talking to her yeah. and, and, and constantly telling her to, uh, don't worry, don't pay attention yeah. to that. Yeah. Just forget that. Let's let's move on. And it's, so, it's a, yeah. It's a, and she, I mean, Maromi is like a, definitely established in this episode as a bit of a trickster. You know, I mean, we see things slowly devolving and yet still this happy peppy dog is telling us all of the things that these characters are doing um, in their job. So I think, you know, it does, it sets up the, a stronger correlation between Maromi and Shonen Bat. Um which obviously plays out significantly in the the last three episodes. Yeah. So we we move from this episode. Uh, time has passed. Maromi is now a megastar. Uh, we see that uh, there's now Maromi balloons flying over the city, like kind of like Thanksgiving Day balloon type size balloons. Uh, everyone has some sort of Maromi swag on. Uh, Maromi CDs are selling like hotcakes. The TV show is a success. Everything is going to the point where uh, Sukiko is being interviewed on talk shows about her process and her life. And uh, she still has, she is not, you would expect her character in a normal story to kind of start dealing with this idea of fame, uh, you know, buying into it. But she still never buys into it. She's still super meek about everything that she talks about. Um, and we we get to finally meet a new character uh misai who is uh ikari's wife um she has been delivered the news that she has uh some sort of sickness that she may or may not survive unless she gets an operation and she has decided not to get an operation because she knows it'll put more stress on her husband who <clears throat> is now a security guard um, he has got uh, what, for what it appears to be one of the more lowly jobs uh, that you can get as a disgraced police officer um, to the fact that his partner, his security yeah. guard, his co-worker is a ex-con that he put away at some point. So there is this sense that, uh, you know, it was, the, it, the was bad the, guys, it was the first person that he put away. Yeah. yeah. So both the bad guys and the good guys are all in the same job working security for these private firms so you know there's a whole thing to be said about the uh you know uh <laughs> there's a the societal structure of uh of corporations uh employing all everyone you know just you could go into a whole other thing with this but uh we'll just stick with our our story as our through line that we have now well these three um, like episodes they almost serve as one big story like the to me i mean obviously they're a little bit separated because this one has the the wife uh conversation with uh shonen bat which is mm -hmm. just very like intense and odd but like funny and just l largely appealing to me like i just thought you know there's definitely like echoes of twin peaks in that in that scene uh, and just Lynch in general, but it's it's just uh, very I don't know I found it riveting that that component of it. And then this the next one is um, you know the one where Maniwa kind of finds out uh, about Sukiko's past, and the the last one obviously has the big climax. But it all feels like a piece to me. Yeah, this is this is the the winding up of finishing yeah. the series. Yeah. This is where we have an end goal, an idea in mind. And we've gotten to that point to kind of like, let's wrap this up. 
And so this episode has the, this episode is almost the, the, the uh, what's a expository episode where we finally get to understand what Shonen Bad is. Um, yeah. She is the one who has decided to take the path of dying. Um, you know, I need an escape. She lures Shonen Bat to her house, and then she just holds him there, almost kind of like a, uh, <clears throat> almost kind of like summoning circle, summoning a demon, and then uh, explaining that she has tricked the demon. She has tricked the trickster, um, and she has, uh, you know, she spends her time trying to talk to this creature um, and work out who he is, what or what it is, and uh, how she refuses to succumb to. Um, this mass hysteria she is going to choose the harder path she's going to face that she has made mistakes she's going to face that she is sick and she's going to do the hard thing and fight Um, which is because she's been inspired by her husband who told her at some point after all their tragedy in their life where they couldn't conceive a child or they did and she her body was too weak to um, to carry it to term um, which adds to that father-daughter aspect that because uh, it was going to be a girl. Mm-hmm. Um, then, you know, she, she, so because of that, she dedicates herself to being the best wife she can be, which means that, you know, she knows her husband's job is important because being a police officer fighting for justice um, is an important role in that society. So she is going to do her best to support him. And even as their lives fall apart, she still continues to dedicate herself to being there to do this for him. And he has taken her for granted. It becomes a whole relationship thing. But even though she's still, you know, she's at her weakest. Her husband doesn't come home anymore. Uh, he's lost his job. It's disgrace. She can't be a mother, which is something that she wanted to be and what society expects of her. She's trying to be a good housewife to a husband that doesn't appreciate her. Uh, she has a sickness that she's probably going to die from. All the cards are stacked against her, and she chooses the hardest path, which is to continue to fight. So she chooses this uh, yeah. idea of honor instead of just giving in to societal pressures, which you know everyone else is at this point. They're just calling Shonen Bat to come and take them out instead of facing these problems. And because of that, you see him morph into this beast this giant creature um you know as he gets angry that he's not going to be able to take this this episode also feels the most like um a traditional anime uh tv show where you have a lot of characters talking because it was a way of uh conserving uh animation cells (laughs) you know you have that episode where you have two characters who are about to battle and they spend the whole episode talking (laughs) and all you do is pan across them or you know you have her head it's like a bottle episode yeah it's a bottle episode of that but at the same time we're learning about akari and his new role we're learning about uh uh, uh, sorry, uh, Maniwa and how he's become Radar Man. So he's embraced this uh, this fringe persona of someone who is outside on the outskirts of society, trying to uh, beat this uh, beat this character back. He's becoming the old man. Uh, he's but he's also becoming uh, like uh, like Makoto. He's in this fantasy world as he is uh, embracing that that role that he played in that guy's fantasy as well. So we're seeing all of our characters and where they're kind of at. So we have Sukiko in the spotlight and 
embracing the denial of kind of uh, her reality that she hurt herself. Uh, we're seeing Akari in his embrace of the past and how things used to be and how he doesn't want to face modern society. So yeah. he escapes into this cardboard cutout world, I think, oh, in this yeah, episode. Oh, yeah, that's right. No, is, I think that's in the set. The I think that's in Radar Man. The twelve is that in? I think I'm not sure. I think at the end of it, he he goes yeah, because he chases the bandit. He goes, hey, come with me. I'll show you this cool thing. They're drunk at the bar. Oh, that's right. Yeah, and they go in, and he chases the bandit, and he runs away all happy. Um, but then yeah, because these three episodes basically are one long episode. It, it, you, it like, is like in you a said. lot of ways. Yeah, I mean, I think the one thing I would disagree with, I guess, I I don't think Akari like doesn't appreciate his wife i think he's he doesn't think that he deserves her yeah you're you're absolutely right i think i think it might have he doesn't show her appreciation for sure um well he has he has that standard he has that uh societal man uh thing of you can't you can't uh show your feelings or your 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 stuff to your wife you know you have to kind of uh be the strong one and because of that everything he's doing is for her but because he's always taking himself away from her, he's not giving yeah. either of them what right. they really need, which is each other. Yeah. Which is but that he whole, also you know, like is partially ta- doing all of this stuff because he doesn't feel like he's living up to that expectation of a, por- a picture of yes. a man in society taking care yes. of his wife. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. I misspoke on that. No, no. I mean, I, I just wanted to make that point because I think there is something about her uh, attitude and her ability to kind of recognize um you know she's the one that that uh that initially explains that Maromi and Shonen Bat are the same and I think her perspective is unique in that way in that she kind of you know knows who she is and even though she uh she takes her role so seriously in their relationship that even though she sees the relationship uh, disintegrating because of the way that he acts towards her, she chooses to uh, try to power through that, to have strength. Yeah, doubles, doubles down. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, like, acknowledges her own, um, you know, value, in a, in a way that I think most of the characters in the series don't. Um, so I think, you know, there's definitely like Akari is not the, not a perfect, uh, person by any stretch. Um, and you know, I mean, he, he, he drives himself crazy, like, you know, screaming at, uh, people to like get on with their, <laughs> his investigation, um, earlier in the, in the series. But, I think their relationship is is kind of uh, essential to kind of sketching out where everybody's uh, attitudes lie when it comes to why you know the collective psychosis and the the this feeling of of being out of control of your life that you have you know no way of kind of setting things straight. Yeah, it's her. It's her attitude towards life that is the. This is the balm yeah. to uh, to this uh, psychosis, this, right. this mass psychosis that's happening, and so yeah, so she yeah, like you said, this is the this is almost the expository episode where we finally kind of get the point that uh, Maromi and and Shonen Bat are the same thing. Shonen Bat is 
taking away people's problems uh, in one way where Maromi is doing the same thing in a different way, but they are the same problem. Uh, it's not facing reality. It's not facing your problems. It's not moving forward. There's no healing. You're, you're constantly, <clears throat> excuse me, you're constantly in a state of, of denial. Um, so you have your reality of your life and then you have the fantasy in which you're building to live in, choosing to live in, so you do not have to face this reality, um, which we start to then realize that because she's saying this, we then realize that Akari has kind of fallen into this trap as well by living in this cardboard cutout 1950s version of, mm. uh, of Japan. Yeah. Um, he has also fallen under that kind of pretense uh that uh that that same psychosis so but it's a little now, it, it's a little interesting because maniwa then uh accesses the information to break that psychosis through not only like the internet which itself is sort of like a weird simulacrum of reality yeah but through this uh guy that's creating these dolls that are representations of reality yeah. Again, is that, mimicking... is that otaku yeah. guy god? Is that what this guy well, is? is a, he... Again, like mimicking Cone's relationship with his work and you know his animation and positioning himself as the key to to unlocking these mysteries, right? Because yeah. I mean, and... it's, it's in in a, a lot of ways, it's, he's a stand-in for Cone, similar to other otakus in his in his films. Yeah, and so, you know, and that's uh, that's where we move into Radar Man, where he goes to investigate, and he's the one fighting, uh, he's now fighting the beast like the Holy Warrior is. He's going around trying to find Shonen Bat and stop him from attacking, and to do, and he's told at the end of the episode, of the previous episode, because he goes to visit uh, uh, Akari's wife to check in on her because he hasn't seen Akari in a while, and uh, she tells of the story of you know that they're the same thing. So he now has the link and the idea of how to solve this. So he goes online, and it is that those dolls. Uh, he visits the old man right. who's been doing the equations. And he dies. says, "Follow the white rabbit." And so all of a sudden, he sees this uh, this doll, uh, white rabbit girl doll. It's almost like a Playboy bunny type girl, and uh, follows her to. Uh, to this home where all these dolls are alive it's almost like a weird sailor moon-esque type uh yeah. world of these dolls and they keep on referring to the guy who creates them as someone who is a doll himself he's not real he's just a doll he doesn't exist without us so you know and that that flashes back to when he uh he's the guy who was having sex with maria at one point and he doesn't even acknowledge she exists. He's just staring at the dolls. And when he's done performing his, uh, you know, when he finally climaxes, he gets off of her and starts talking to the dolls like, oh, did I do a good job? I did this one for you. And he's like completely ignoring like it's that otaku in the yeah. most depraved and horrible sense. But you see that he's carving all the characters. Uh uh, of the story he's making dolls of all of them including a doll of himself and it's really yeah well uh, he's created his own reality as much as mm -hmm. um as anybody in the um in in the series i mean sukiko or um what's yeah, his name everyone. the uh the the copycat little slugger um they you know they're they're crafting this uh 
removed reality in order to uh, separate themselves from their own lives. Yeah, and then uh, um, Radar Man, he plugs into the internet, almost like uh, Johnny Mnemonic or uh, or, uh, The Matrix. Yeah, Yeah, Neo. He plugs into the internet and uh, is able to finally kind of... Who also followed followed a white rabbit, by the way. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And he follows, he finally finds the news article. You know, he does detective work. It's the thing, like, she is accessing his detective instincts, is what she says uh, as she plugs him into the internet. And he's finally able to kind of meld his fantasy and reality together. He's able to, you know, this fantasy that he's Radar Man, uh, but they're able to access his detective skills, which is why he became a detective, to do research to discover that uh, Tsukiku was attacked when she was younger. Um, and by the same exact character and so he's able to investigate to discover that uh, Tsukiku had a dog named Maromi and Maromi was killed by this assailant but really the story was is that she had created the story of the assailant to cover up for the fact that her dog was uh, through her own neglect was run over uh, not her own neglect. She was walking me. the dog, and then she the dog. Uh, yeah, she let go of the leash, and the dog ran into the street. Wait, and got which appeared, which you know, and this is one more level. I think she was having her first period cramps. She grabs her stomach, and she's having a moment of mm. distress, and she she gets she kind of bends down, and she she curls up, almost uh, clutching her stomach, because she is a girl that's on the cusp. And through that pain, she would, her dog gets away and gets crushed. And so it's almost like this moment of adulthood, this change into being a woman right. is the moment she's that feared, the trauma, She's afraid her dad's going to find out. Yeah, her dad's going to find out, which not only is her dad going to find out because her mom's dead. So she no longer has this feminine uh, person, this uh, female person to help her uh, navigate being an adult. Um, her dad's going to find out that both she is now having her period and that her dog has been killed. So there's that double symbolism of what the blood means, you know, the blood on her mm-hmm. hands and the blood from the dog. Um, and so that informs what kind of an adult she becomes, which is someone who represses everything, um, which creates this whole fantasy world that she lives in. So if, if this, uh, I mean, that I really like that. That makes total sense to me. The rest of uh, the, the this three-part episode uh, gets weirder. Oh, yeah. Because then <laughs> so they get all, sucked, this, all this, sucked all this the fantasy world, becomes right? reality. Yeah, and then, <laughs> then they're communicating with the real world through the cartoon. Um, as, as Shonen Bad is getting larger and attacking Tokyo, Tokyo becomes... Uh, the this this like black, uh, yeah. Shonen Bat becomes this goo- ooze. Yeah, like, it becomes this. Reminds me of um the same kind of thing in um Spirited Away. Um, mm-hmm. is it, is it or is that in in Mononoke too? There's like this black ooze. Um, it's it's both the black yeah. ooze kind of is infecting the spirit creatures. Yeah. But then you also have the. Uh, the character who's eating everything and right. becoming that big giant glob monster that's just yeah. tearing through and sucking everyone into him. It reminds me a lot of that. Um, and uh, it just, things just get 
uh, th this is really where you're just like, okay, like I can explain this to a certain degree, but also at the same time, I kind of don't want to. Like, it's just, it, it kind of is uh, what it is, and you, well, you're, you're there for the ride. Yeah, that's where the bleed happens. That's the, uh, that's the moment where you realize that anything that you could have explained away as fantasy, in, in a fantasy head, like this yeah. is all taking place in someone's brain, like this is their subjective view of how they're seeing their reality, and that isn't reality, to have this become reality. And we could explain it away as this is part of a post-earthquake tsunami thing that this has shaken up the world um, because I think, you know, at some point Akari comes out of the subway and says, oh, this is like after the war, you know, the amount of destruction. And we know it's real because we then go into the same montage at the begin as the beginning of the right. show, but they're rebuilding. So is this the storm and or is this is has this really occurred has has a giant maromi dog fought this black goo throughout the whole world and everything has been in sukiko's mind like has she has she dreamt this whole thing or did it become kind of like a david cronenberg psychoplasmics where her psychosis has become a physical manifestation that has destroyed the whole entire world because if you think about it on that aspect from the psych the psychological thing is we are going through a complete world shift because she's accepting responsibility and no longer in facing reality and everyone now has to face the reality of their decisions so as this black icker is pulsating through the city we touch upon every character we've had in the show and Maromi has disappeared from everyone's lives uh, you know, to the point where people wearing Maromi t-shirts have holes where the yeah. Maromi image so, is. So cool. It's such a such a <laughs> neat concept. Like it's just it's like it's just transported completely out and all that Maromi energy has turned into this giant Maromi dog to fight this thing. And we have you know, it's 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 absolutely you can't explain it away, you just have to accept it. Like you said, yeah. <laughs> we have to accept that what's going on is the culmination of everything that has happened and we need to go for the ride to process and let the characters process what's going on. Um, and we have that beautiful tragic scene where uh, Sukiku visits her younger self, um, picks up the dog, dog and accepts um, what has happened, which I think uh, we in, a, in an off off uh, off podcast conversation we had about which mirrors the same image at the beginning of her being injured and lying on the ground. It's the same animation, um, the same way she's sitting on the ground is the same way from when she's first attacked in the first episode, um, and the in the way she looks at the blood on her hands and the blood on the dog. It's a it's it's a beautiful mirror. Now we've come complete circle back around to the beginning again. Well, and then that's that's again executed in the form of Maniwa's story, where he becomes the old man and is now drawing. Uh, yeah, we have the same. We have the, the ground. We have the same opening. We have, but and here's the sad part, right? We go back full circle again. Uh, what have we learned? Uh, we've learned to accept things, but then we're right back in the same societal problems. People on their phone making excuses not facing reality, not wanting to do the hard things, uh, trying to get out of responsibility. And then there's a Miniwa uh, sketching the same giant equation on the ground. 
and uh, we're back to the beginning again. Uh, we're left with this empty equation of what what we're going to look at next. Um, I it's a yeah. I I really think that this thing is is an extraordinary work, and I just uh, see myself revisiting it just kind of regularly. Like it just feels like something that um, is larger than uh, any one viewing takeaway could possibly. Uh, get at and I, I mean I think it is it's addressing large uh, issues in a serious way but I think more importantly for me it just feels like an, a, a, the kind of experience that um, is unpredictable regardless of how many times you've seen it uh, and that that's really exciting to me I don't know I think this is probably uh, the best thing that he did even though I love uh millennium actress more and probably always will like this just uh it's really special i i really think this is the kind of thing that that everybody should should see who's at all interested in in film oh completely this is uh <clears throat> it's epic yeah it has it has it has a uh a, a breadth and width to it that you can continue to uh, pursue it uh, and and get more and more out of it uh, as you change as a person as as time changes I mean looking at it now in 2021 eyes from when it came out this original run was 2004 and here we are 2021 and everything in this show relates to our society right now um, you know this many years later um, we still have the same uh obsessions as a negative we still have this whole reality versus fantasy as i'm having to spend my time teaching my kids that what you see on the internet doesn't mean it's fact that yeah. even even pictures of friends doing stuff doesn't mean that you know they're you know it's it's this idea that you have to present ourselves as this fantastic as this fantasy online um because reality no one wants to deal with reality um we're dealing with that now with this pandemic many people not wanting to deal with the reality that we have a pandemic um and so we must either continue to act as if not everything's normal or that it doesn't affect us and that in itself is a form of uh mass delusion we have this uh the rise of misinformation on the internet this yeah. whole QAnon stuff all this stuff is related directly into the text and the subtext and the meta text of this uh, of this TV series, and it's done in a in a masterful way in terms of its uh, techniques. Uh, you know, the, he employs all of his techniques that he's used in the past, from match cutting to transitions to time to uh, animation styles. You know, every episode. You know, there's episodes where when we get into uh, Ikari's cardboard world, you know, he challenged his uh, color people to only use like the same colors that you would find in a six pack of crayons. No variations of those shades, that that's it. Uh, you know, trying to teach your animators to draw crudely. Um, people always have a problem with uh, Cone's animation style. Like a lot of traditionalists don't like how ugly his characters look, how, they, how nothing is beautified to a degree. Um, and so this 
it, it goes through different phases. There's some characters that are more ugly than others. That the rushed episode feels rushed, like the characters are poorly yeah. sketched as as it moves faster throughout. Um, it's saying it's saying on so many levels, so many different things. Um, you know, we, we we could have done this uh, two episodes at a time and talked two hours per episode, um, and really kind of gone uh, super deep. Uh, I did I did a, a little research, just enough to put it into context, but. I felt that if I started reading too much into it, that we wouldn't be able to just talk about it in terms of its goals and aspirations yeah. and themes in his larger body of work. Um, but this is a monumental TV series. And the fact that I've watched it three times and, you know, not gotten bored, not, not, not kind of been like, okay, well, I can fast through through this stuff because there's nothing to move past or quickly through. Everything is important. From the opening title sequence, which is burned into my brain forever, <laughs> to the that song and to the uh, to the prophecies at the end of every single episode, um, every single thing in this show is planned, thought out, and a part of a larger tapestry that he's weaving. That is also part of a larger tapestry of all of his other works. Yeah. This show, it wouldn't have surprised me if. There was a poster for Perfect Blue in the background of one of the shops, or if we saw our homeless Tokyo Godfathers walking through a frame of the show. Like this is this is such an uh, encompassing world that all those characters could easily be a part of this world as well, and it would make total sense in that way that only he can blend reality and fiction, make you question and make you say, "Hey, we have to keep these things separate." But then have the fantasy world destroy our reality completely as a form of, well, this is what we get when we put too much faith in fantasy is it destroys us completely. And in a physical manifestation of that black ichor uh, destroying Tokyo in a way that is, uh, you know, complete and total. And they have to rebuild, rebuild our society again after we've had this ego death this fantasy death that we've had yeah. it's a uh, it's monumental and i i agree with you 100 percent. this is something that um should be up there um as one of the greatest tv shows ever and he's really playing with the medium too i mean in the same way like lynch and fire walk with me opens with like a tv being um blasted apart uh the he's very aware that this is a TV show and is working, you know, the, this is, yeah. this is the first thing that he's done that doesn't have a, a first couple seconds misdirect of what it's about. Um, but the first five episodes, four to five episodes in a way feel like that misdirect coming in. Oh, completely. You know, yeah. You're establishing this sort of episodic nature of TV and then you're completely subverting that with the rest of the show. Yeah, detective procedural, and then all of a sudden, nope, that's not what this is. Ha ha, here we go. Now this is what we're going to do. Nope, we're not doing that either. Ha ha. Yeah. <laughs> it just, it's, it's, he is, he's playing with the medium, he's playing with the, uh, the style. We, we are completely aware of what he's, that this is, uh, something that he is going to, just like uh, in his other works, he's going to play around in this field and, and really kind of, uh, make it his own and also comment on everything um you know 
there's every episode there's a commentary about a different part of Japanese society every episode there's a commentary about human condition every episode there is a commentary about the show you're watching yeah. like he's he's working on the, the levels that are so uh, so deep that um, you can watch it over and over again and constantly get new information from it um, and it's and it wouldn't be it wouldn't be boring. It would be completely uh, enrapturing, like every single time. Well, we could go on forever, but uh, we've gone on almost forever now. Um, I guess <laughs> I, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna wrap it up. I mean, I think like the you know, it's sad to know that, that we only have one more work uh, of his. Um, it's probably his most famous, uh, certainly in the U.S. Yeah. Um, and you know, uh, was went in, in went on to inspire Nolan's Inception, which is how a lot of um, film fans get into Cohn's work is finding about uh, finding out about the inspiration for films that they may like or have seen uh, from Western directors. Um, this is Paprika I'm talking about, by the way. Um, so we will be covering that on on our uh next episode um do you have any final words uh try to keep it under two and a half hours uh this episode uh quickly um about paranoia agent i mean we didn't even talk about the title um i mean i think it's pretty clear like you know the idea is that they that uh maromi and uh shonen bat serve as this feeling of uh, uh claustrophobia and and the sense that you know your life is is falling apart or there's a grander scheme of destruction going on yeah the word agent is more not like an agent like yeah, a like a host you, yeah like a host yeah exactly yeah. like agency yeah. and uh no i guess uh to begin uh, <laughs> should I say I should think... I say hello and welcome to uh, the complete <laughs> Satoshi Kon? To begin, <laughs> Matthew and Travis go on an adventure. Thirteen hours have passed. <laughs> Follow the go to Paprika, and then we are complete for another week. <laughs>